Did you hear the squeaking? I think I know what that was, right? <laughs> Our uh, little two-year-old uh, girl, Avery, my wife got her these really cute shoes. And with every step, they squeak so that you always know where she is. So that was, that was, that was, that was cute to be able to hear it and know what was going on. So you should go find her and, and watch her walk around after service. That might look kind of creepy. So actually, <laughs> be careful. You have my permission. Uh, next Sunday, uh, Pastor Curtis will be preaching and we will then resume our sermon series. He will going through the book of Genesis and then Lord willing, we will wrap up our Genesis sermon series around Easter, and then we'll move on to a book from the New Testament. But between services last week, as I was addressing abortion, for those of you who were here, um, I knew that today I didn't want to resume our Genesis study. Rather, I wanted to biblically answer a very old and practical question. It is a question that some have asserted is not answered explicitly in the Bible, and therefore where the Bible is silent, we should be silent. But I would disagree. And it's a question that I, th- I think, if at all possible, needs to be answered today amidst so much suffering and dying and even dead children. So the question is, where do babies go when they die? Is the question I'd like us to biblically answer today. I know that there are many here who have miscarried little ones. And I know that there are many gals here who have had abortions. Many men here who have led gals to have abortions. And so I can't think of a more pressing and practical question that if we can find an answer biblically, we should we should seek to answer it. For some of you, that question is deeply personal because it's, where is my baby? Where is my baby? Where is the the baby that I miscarried? Where is the baby that I aborted? Where is the baby that I lost in my womb or that I lost at? birth or that I lost in the crib. I mentioned last week there's there's been over 55 million babies now aborted just in this country. And even that aside, historically, the infant mortality rate has been high and each of these little babies has had an eternal soul. So where are they? Where are these babies? Are they populating heaven? Are they populating hell? 
or are they divided up between heaven and between hell? And is there more than sentiment that we can offer to that question? Is there rock solid Bible that we can stand on when we're facing this in our own lives or in the lives of people around us? Does the Bible answer this question? I believe it does. I believe the Bible answers this question. And and I believe that for those of you who know God, who know God as a great God, as a good God, and as a merciful God, you will not be surprised by the answer we find in God's Word. So let's pray together. And then we will open God's Word and search the Bible to see if we can find an answer to this question. Where do babies go when they die? Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, You know our weaknesses. And You know our temptation to speak peace to ourselves when there is no peace. You know our temptation to comfort ourselves at all costs, even if it means avoiding the truth. So don't let us do that today, God. If there is comfort to be found and encouragement to be found and hope to be found, God, may it be anchored in Your Word and nothing else. So help me to speak well and to speak clearly and most importantly to speak biblically. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may already be thinking this, but let me say it too. And that is that this sermon cannot be dogmatic. I'm not going to preach this dogmatically. This is my conviction. The answer I'm going to Give is my conviction and of course my hope and my prayer this week has been that I can compel you and persuade you to answer this question biblically. My hope is that there will be a a new level of joy for some of you that have lost little ones and that, that level of joy will be anchored in God's word. It'll have real, real substance to it. But I'm, I'm not being dogmatic. In other words, I'm, I can't say that what I'm going to say today in regards to answering this question is incontrovertibly true. Because the Bible is not as clear on every subject as it is on other subjects. And the Bible is not as clear as it is on, say, the Gospel when it comes to us answering this question. There are other doctrines that have more straightforward, clear, repetitive statements that inform our various positions. So, this doesn't show up in our member doctrinal statement. Here is a church, right? When you read our member doctrinal statement, we say you cannot be a member here unless you believe these things because these things are incontrovertibly true. And we are more than willing to be totally dogmatic about everything that you find in that doctrinal statement because these are close to the heart of the gospel. Now, all truth is important, 
But the closer it is to the gospel, the more important that truth is and the more necessary it is that you and I get it right. So you can be a a member of Veritas Church and you can disagree with what I'm going to say today. This is not a hill that we are interested in dying on. That said, what I would like to do is give seven biblical observations that cause me to draw the following conclusion. So here is my position that I hope will soon be yours. And then we'll go through the seven biblical observations that have caused me to draw this conclusion. So here it is, and I'll say it several times throughout this sermon, so don't feel like you've got to write this all down right now, because it's sort of long. All those who die without the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation, and so I have in mind their infants, Infants in the womb, outside of the womb. I have in mind very young children. I have in mind those who are severely mentally retarded. They are all those who die without the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation are saved by God through the work of Jesus Christ being innocent of willful sin, rebellion, and unbelief by which they would have been justly condemned to eternal punishment. So that's the conclusion. And I've got an abridged version of that. If that's just too long and you've lost me already, let me just give that to you very briefly and concisely. My biblical position would be that whenever a baby dies, he or she flies straight to the arms of Jesus. Now, who wouldn't want to believe that? So, this is dangerous. This is dangerous. Who wouldn't want to believe this? And when there's things we want to believe, we can be tempted to make Scripture say what we want it to say. So the question we've got to ask is, is that conclusion true? Does it have any biblical foundation? So let me show you seven biblical observations that lead me to believe that it is. Number one. No baby dies apart from the will of God. Observation number one. No baby dies apart from the will of God. So what we're saying is that when a baby dies, God took that baby. Now there may have been many other causes, but they are what the theologians call secondary causes. There may have been other events and other decisions and behavior that led to the loss of a baby. But no baby dies apart from the will of God. And this is 
how we know that, we know that because the Bible teaches that nothing happens apart from the will of God. Nothing happens apart from the will of God. Everything that happens, every decision, every circumstance, every life event is planned by God. There may be evil and sinful and wicked motives behind the men or behind our great enemy who have also brought these things about. But there is a good God with always pure motives who has His hand behind everything that ever happens. This is the doctrine of the exhaustive sovereignty of God. So I would reject the unbiblical notion that God has, because He is a gentleman, put His hands in His pocket so as not to violate the free will of man. That is a popular doctrine today, but I do not find it biblical. This would be a view of the limited sovereignty of God. Well, God could be exhaustively sovereign and He could decree all things and He could ordain all things, but He doesn't. He limits His own sovereignty. And by His design, He doesn't impose Himself on the free actions of men. And He stands by, if you will, He's been called a gentleman. And so all the horror that results is because God prizes free will more than anything else. But this isn't what the Bible teaches. And here are a bunch of verses to illustrate it. And we don't have time for all of them, right? But here are a bunch of verses. Let me read through them. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Daniel 4.35 All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Daniel 2.21 He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. How do kings reach their power? How do presidents reach their power? Well, Daniel 2 says that God sets them up and takes them down. Wait a minute. I thought we voted Him in. Well, that's a secondary cause. Yes, we voted Him in, but it is God who sets up kings and takes them down. What about the decisions that these kings or presidents make? Psalm 21.1. I'm sorry, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart, or the president's heart if you like, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and God turns it wherever He will. Jeremiah 10.23 Jeremiah said, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. What about random acts? What about things that appear totally random to us? Are we saying that even that does not happen apart from the will of God? What about the strike of lightning? What about the rolling of dice? And we've got verses. Isaiah 40. 
Job 36.32, he covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is trying to make it very clear through His Word that He is exhaustively sovereign and that nothing happens apart from His will. But what about bad things? What about painful things? What about suffering? Does the Bible say that it is according to the will of God? Because we may be tempted to punt at this point. And many are. Isaiah 45.7 God said, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord. Who does all these things? Amos 3.6 Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? You remember Job, who I think second to Jesus, suffered more than anyone else ever? Do you remember what he said in regards to all the suffering that he was enduring in Job 1.21? He said, the Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. He understood the exhaustive sovereignty of God. And what about the worst suffering that humanity has ever seen? The murder of God. The torture and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That did not happen apart from the will of God. Peter praised it in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do. And we know what they did. They tortured and crucified Jesus. But Peter says they were all gathered together to do, God, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Nothing happens apart from the will of God, including the death of infants. Now, for some of you, that may be really difficult. It certainly was for me. Because your knee-jerk reaction is if God is in control of all these things, including these bad things, then I can't understand how God could still be good. So may it be enough at this point to just say that, friends, there is truth behind the truth. And it is helpful truth. It is consistent truth. And our God is a good God. And nothing happens apart from His will. Like George Mueller said at his wife's funeral in 1860, he had three points in the sermon he preached at his wife's funeral. The Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. The Lord was good and did good in so long leaving her to me. And the Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. Nothing happens apart from the will of God. Number two, second biblical observation. All children are sinners at conception. 
All children are sinners at conception. I'll show you this. But if it's true, that means that the answer to our question, where do babies go when they die, can't be they go to heaven because they are not yet sinners. Some would answer that question that way. But it's not a biblical answer. Because all children are sinners at conception. We have in the Bible the clear teaching of original sin. Children are not born morally neutral. They are not clean slates. Romans 5 tells us they have inherited the sinful nature of their father, Adam. In fact, they have inherited the guilt of their father's sin, Adam. And so they are sinners by nature before they are sinners by choice. Here's some verses. Psalm 58.3 The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Psalm 51.5 David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Genesis 8.21, God says, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. There's many more. But remember what Paul says in Romans 3.10-12, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God And that includes living infants in their mother's womb. No one is good. Not even one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And Ephesians 2, 3b says, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I've said this before. We are and we were born into a citizenry of God-haters. Now, some of you may be thinking at this point, these two conclusions are not very helpful in drawing the conclusion that all babies go to heaven. You're doing a poor job, Pastor. This isn't looking good. No baby dies apart from the will of God. And all of those babies, all of those infants who have died, they were sinners at conception. In fact, here, based upon this clear doctrine of total depravity is where some have found their answer to our question. And that is, well, because all Babies are depraved sinners. All babies who die go to hell. And some would hold that position. You're right. All babies are depraved. All babies are sinners at conception. Therefore, all babies who die in infancy before they place their faith in Christ, all of them, all of them, are sent to hell. Charles Spurgeon, who believed, as I do in total depravity, was accused of holding this position, to which he responded, 
among the gross falsehoods which have been uttered against the Calvinist proper is the wicked calumny that we hold the damnation of little infants. A baser lie was never uttered. There may have existed somewhere in some corner of the earth a miscreant who would dare to say that there were infants in hell, but I have never met with him, nor have I met with a man who ever saw such a person. We say with regard to infants, Scripture saith but little, and therefore where Scripture is confessedly scant, it is for no man to determine dogmatically. But I think I speak for the entire body, or certainly with exceedingly few exceptions, and those unknown to me, when I say, we hold that all infants are elect of God and are therefore saved, and we look to this as being the means by which Christ shall see of the travail of His soul to a great degree. And we do sometimes hope that thus the multitude of the saved shall be made to exceed the multitude of the lost. The damnation of all infants based on the doctrine of total depravity is a logical conclusion. But we must keep reading. What do the Scriptures say? And if it is true that all babies who die in infancy are damned to hell, then it is very interesting that observation number three, there is not a single biblical account of an infant being condemned upon their death. However, there are biblical accounts of infant salvation. There is not a single biblical account of an infant being condemned upon their death. However, there are biblical accounts of infant salvation. I believe one example is in 1 Kings chapter 14. And another, the one that I'd like us to look at together, which Pastor Curtis read, we can find in 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. So if you have your Bible, let's turn there together and let's look at a few of these verses. Here is the chain of events leading to this text that we're going to read. David has committed adultery with a married woman named Bathsheba. She became pregnant. To cover his sin, David basically ordered the murder of her husband, Uriah. Sometime later, Nathan, who is like David's spiritual advisor, confronts David on his great sin, and David responds with sorrow and repentance. And that brings us to verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. David repents and Nathan says, God is not going to punish you for your sin. God has, what does Nathan say? God has put away your sin. 
though you should die for your sin, David, though all of us should die for our sin, David is forgiven because his punishment will be borne by Jesus on the cross. So he says, you're not going to die. You should die. But the Lord is going to put away your sin. You are forgiven. And we know this to be based on Jesus being punished in our place. However, there will be consequences to what David has done. And if you keep reading the next few chapters, you will find many of the consequences. If you are a Christian, God never punishes you for your sin because all of your sin has been punished in Christ. God disciplines His children. And that is very different from punishment. God will introduce pain into the life of His children for their good. Because He loves them. Just like a good mother or father will discipline their child if they love them. But it is not punishment for sin. Because Christ has suffered the punishment for sin. The punishment you deserve for the least of your sins is death on a cross. So he says, God has put away your sin, David. But there are going to be some natural consequences that are going to unfold in your life because of what you've done. In verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. So David is told that his baby is going to die. No baby dies apart from the will of God. Is this baby a sinner? Yes. This baby is a sinner. Does David know this baby is a sinner? He does. He wrote Psalm 51. He wrote Psalm 58, which we quoted when talking about the biblical reality that all children are sinners at conception. Verse 15. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. So here is David. He's, he's mourning over his sin. And he's mourning over the news that he's received regarding the pending death of his son. But this is really good. He doesn't stop praying. He's been told by God that this baby's going to die. And he still prays. And he'll tell us later. Because maybe God will change his mind. Those who believe in the exhaustive sovereignty of God do not stop praying. God says elsewhere to His people, this is what I'm going to do to you, and it's not going to be good. But if you repent, who knows? I may relent. So He prays. 
He prays, maybe there's still a way for this cup to be taken from me. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. So God did not grant his request. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. They assumed, like all of us would, that his condition is going to worsen when he learns about the death of his son. They're afraid he's going to kill himself. Verse 20. Then David arose. I'm sorry, verse 19. When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. They were worried he was going to bring harm to himself. And instead, when he gets the news of his son's death, he gets up. He goes and takes a shower. Cleans himself up. Puts on fresh clothes. Walks into the kitchen. Says, I'm hungry. Eats food. A really surprising response. Why? Why does David respond in this way? I'd like to contrast this with the loss of another one of David's sons. In a few chapters, David will lose another son named Absalom in chapter 18. Absalom does not die like this first child as an infant. Absalom dies after he has rebelled against his father, sought to take the crown, incited rebellion against his father, tried to murder his father, slept with his father's concubines on the roof of his father's house before all of Israel. And Absalom dies. And when Absalom dies, David's reaction is very different. Let me read it to you. Chapter 18, verse 31, And behold, the Cushite came. This is the messenger. And the Cushite said, Good news for my Lord the King. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The King said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? The messenger comes and says, Your enemies have been defeated. And all David cares about is, What about my boy? This boy who's been in rebellion, who seems to despise me. He wants me dead. But he loves his boy. How's my boy? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. What was he saying? He's dead. He's dead. He's saying he got what he deserved. He was against you, King David. 
So he's dead. And read David's response. It's very different. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. So see the contrast. When David loses his first child, when his first child dies, his mourning stops. When Absalom dies, his mourning begins. Why the difference? Well, let's keep reading where we were. Because the servants want an answer to that question too. And David answers them. A reason for his, what they see as odd behavior. Verse 21. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David knew that it was gracious of God to take his baby. They knew it. He knew, number one, he knew that his son was being saved from the troubles of this world. Job chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Job, in the middle of his worst suffering, said, or why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child? As infants who never see the light. There the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest. What is Job saying? He's saying it would have been better if I had been miscarried. It would have been better for me if I had died in the womb or died at birth. Why? Because I would have escaped the troubles of this world. Now, would it have been better? So he's saying stillbirth. Here I am. Job is in the middle of deep life suffering. And he's saying stillbirth is preferable. Would being stillborn be preferable if that meant being sent to hell. Of course not. Of course it wouldn't be. What does he say? There are those who escape the trouble of this world and where do they go? To rest. What is rest? Where is rest found for the believer? It is found in Christ. It is found in eternity with Him. Solomon also knew this truth. David's other son when he wrote in Ecclesiastes 6, 3-5, through If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. 
For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. What does Job understand? What does Solomon understand? What did David understand? That his son was being spared from a world full of trouble. And David knew, secondly, as he says explicitly, that he would be reunited with his infant son. What does he say? He shall not come to me. He's not coming back. But I shall go to him. What was his hope? Being reunited with his infant son. And David knew that he would not experience that reunion with Absalom. And so he mourned. When he lost his first infant son, he knew it was not the end of the story. He knew that he would be reunited to him in heaven. I shall go to him. So he was able to rise and worship and eat But when he learns of the death of his son, Absalom. He knows he's not going to see his boy again. He knows there will be no reunion. And so he weeps before God. Now, how did David know that? How did he know that he was going to see his son? How did he know that his infant son was in heaven? That's what we're looking for. Well, I think David probably understood what we understand from Scripture, as I stated in our conclusion. The infant was saved because he did not yet have the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation and was therefore saved by God through the work of Jesus Christ, being innocent of willful sin, rebellion, and unbelief, by which they would have been, he would have been justly condemned to eternal punishment. Which leads to the fourth biblical observation. Infants do not have the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation. Infants do not have the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation. Neither do very young children. Neither do those who are severely mentally retarded. They do not have this ability. They have not yet reached what some would call a condition of accountability. If that condition has not been reached, then according to Scripture, and we'll read two very important verses. If that condition has not been reached, then according to Scripture, that individual will be with excuse on the day of judgment. John 9.41 is the first one. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see your guilt remains. Jesus is talking to these non-believers 
and saying, you know and you understand and you see. You know who God is and you are in rebellion against Him. If you were blind, He says, if you somehow did not see and understand and know God through His revelation, Jesus said, you would have no guilt. John Piper says about this verse, in other words, if a person lacks the natural capacity to see the revelation of God's will or God's glory, then that person's sin would not remain. God would not bring the person into final judgment for not believing what he had no natural capacity to see. And the other text is in Romans chapter 1. Let me read verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This is what Paul is saying. We know this to be true. We know that all those who reject the Gospel will go to hell. We know that's true. All those who hear the Gospel and reject the Gospel will be eternally alienated from God. But some may raise the question, well, what if they've never heard the Gospel? Have you heard that? What if you're talking about an unreached people group? What if it's someone who has never heard the Gospel? Will they be held accountable? That's the question that Paul is answering in Romans 1. And his answer is yes. They will be held accountable. They will be condemned and damned because they have willfully rejected God, though they have seen His invisible qualities and glory. Did you hear him say that? So they have... You don't have to hear the Gospel. Just look at the stars. And your conscience bears witness, human being, that there is a God, and He is great, and He is good, and yet you don't cry out for His mercy You don't ask Him to reveal Himself to you and yet you live in willful rejection of Him. And Paul makes the case that this person will be without excuse on the day of judgment. But, what of those who have never seen and understood God's invisible qualities? They are, I believe, with excuse. They're not included in who Paul has just described as being without excuse. Are infants suppressing the truth? Infants are not suppressing the truth. Again, John Piper said, so I asked the question, Okay, is the principle being raised here that if you don't have access to the knowledge that causes you to be held accountable, therefore you will not be held accountable? And I think that's the case. Absalom had this ability. 
Absalom had seen and understood God's revelation. He had been instructed in the ways of the Lord and he had rejected God. David's infant did not have this natural ability. And so they were dealt very differently. They were dealt with very differently by God. David knew this, which prompted two very different responses to these two boys' deaths. Biblical observation number five. Because infants do not yet have the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation, they are innocent of willful sin, rebellion, and unbelief. They are not innocent, but they are innocent of willful sin and rebellion and unbelief. This observation is not contradicting our second observation that all children are sinful at conception. They are sinners by nature. An infant is a sinner by nature. But there is a difference and a distinction made in our Bible between those who are sinful by nature and those who are sinful in deed or sinful by their works or sinful by choice. All those who are sinful by nature, which is all of us, if given the time, if given the ability, we will spurn God's revelation and we will become sinners by choice. But there is a stage at which we are sinners by nature and not yet sinners by choice. And God makes this distinction clear in Scripture. Haven't you heard how God and even Jesus talk differently about Children. I'll read you a few verses. Jonah 4.11 Jonah here wants God to smoke Nineveh. You remember this? So there's nothing good in that city. Just wipe it out. Nothing good comes from Nineveh. And he wants God to completely destroy the whole city. And God's response is there's 120,000 innocent children in that city. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? God makes a distinction in Deuteronomy 1.39. And as for your little ones who you said would become a prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there and to them I will give it and they shall possess it. Or Isaiah 7.16, For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And we could read in Ezekiel chapter 16 where God is angry over His people sacrificing their children and God calls them My children. You're sacrificing my children. These are my infants who upon their death will fly to Him. And then remember Jesus' words in Matthew 19. 
Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. They are innocent of willful sin, rebellion, and unbelief. And therefore, number six, because infants do not yet have the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation and are innocent of willful sin, rebellion, and unbelief, they are saved by God through the work of Jesus Christ. And here is the basis for that. Our last observation, number seven. And I'll say this a few different ways. Scripture always connects eternal condemnation to the sinner's deeds or works. This is really important. And let me say it again. Scripture always connects eternal condemnation to the sinner's deeds or works. Have you noticed this in passages where it's speaking of the judgment of God and then there's a list of the actual sins they have committed. They're sinful by nature and sinful by choice. Judgment is always based on the works one performed in this life. John MacArthur said, Eternal judgment is always based on a conscious rejection of divine revelation, either in creation, conscience, or Christ, and willful disobedience. Listen to Revelation 20, verses 11 through 12, the picture of the great judgment. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. John 8.24, Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. We know this. All those in heaven will have been saved by grace. We know that. All those in heaven will have been saved by grace. Here's the other side of that coin. All those in hell will have been damned by works. All those in hell will have been damned by their works. And so what? If one does not have the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation... What if one is innocent of willful sin and rebellion and unbelief? What if one does not have a list of sinful deeds? Will they be cast into hell or received into heaven? An infant is sinful by nature, but their life 
has been taken by God before they can build an account against themselves. God has taken them. No child dies apart from the will of God. Justice seems to require that the one who judged know and understand why he or she is being condemned or justified. The lost in hell, I believe, will know full well why they are there and what and who they rejected, which landed them there. In the same way, the saved will know full well why they are with Jesus. R.A. Webb, who wrote on this subject over a hundred years ago, is really helpful when he says this. That future and final retribution will be proportional to deeds done in the body. Dead infants have been prevented by the providence of God from committing any responsible deeds of any sort in the body. And consequently, infants are not damnable upon these premises. And there is no account in Scripture of any other judgment based upon any other grounds. He goes on to say, If a dead infant were sent to hell on no other account than that of original sin, there would be a good reason to the divine mind for the judgment because sin is a reality. But the child's mind would be a perfect blank as to the reason of its suffering. Under such circumstances, it would know suffering, but it would have no understanding of the reason for its suffering. It could not tell itself why it was so awfully smitten and consequently the whole meaning and significance of its sufferings being to it a conscious enigma. The very essence of the penalty would be absent and justice would be disappointed, cheated of its validation. David's infant son was saved just like you and me. Completely and totally by grace. Absalom was condemned by his wicked deeds and willful rejection of God so that eternal punishment was God's just judgment. Friends, this is the character of God. The character of God is at stake when we ask questions like this. Martin Luther was right and almost every theologian has agreed with him since when he said that justice or judgment is God's strange work, but mercy is his common work. God by nature is not wrath. God by nature is love. He is a wrathful God. He's a wrathful God because he is a holy God and because he loves his people. Our God is a God of love. Our God is a merciful God. So seven observations that led me, let me say it again, to this conclusion. All those who die without the natural ability to see and understand God's revelation are saved by God through the work of Jesus Christ being innocent of willful sin rebellion and unbelief by which they would have been justly condemned to eternal punishment. It's interesting, I get the sense when I read Scripture that there's going to be a lot of people in heaven. 
Now, we have scriptures that say that very few, this is, of course, speaking of adults, find the narrow gate and make it onto this narrow road. Few. But then we have scripture saying there are many in Christ. And if you ask me, there looks to be millions upon millions upon millions in the new heavens and the new earth singing to God, worshiping God, and rejoicing God. And I believe it's because of the millions upon millions upon millions of babies that we've lost that have gone straight to be with God. You know, Scripture says that in heaven will be represented people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation, doesn't it? What about tongues that no longer exist? What about tribes that no longer exist? What about people groups who no longer exist where the gospel was never sent? People groups who lived and died and never heard the gospel. How will they be represented in heaven? They lost babies, didn't they? They lost children. So there will be people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation in Christ, in the new heavens and the new earth. Let me close with a quote and then a scripture. John MacArthur said this better than I could. So when an infant dies, he or she is elect to eternal salvation and eternal glory. So dear one, if you have a little one that dies, rejoice. Count not your human loss. Count your eternal gain. Count not that child as having lost, but having gained having passed briefly through this life untouched by the wicked world only to enter into eternal glory and grace. The true sadness should be over those children of yours who live and reject the gospel. Don't sorrow over your children in heaven. Sorrow over your children on earth that they should come to Christ This is your great responsibility, your great opportunity. And then a scripture. Because I know that some of you may not be convinced. That those who die in infancy are saved. I still want you to have joy. I want you to have hope. And so I would encourage you to rest your soul in Psalm 119, verse 68. Very simply put, to God you are good and do good. Period. God is good and God does good. Are you not convinced? Are you not compelled? Are you still concerned? Well, remember, bottom line, we say with 
much dogmatism. God is good. And God always does good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for being our good God. God, I ask that you would apply the scriptures we've looked at today to certain hearts today in profound ways. That there would be people among us who would now experience a new level in their joy in you because they stand firmer on a hope that they will be reunited one day with the little ones that they have lost. But I pray that the bedrock of their joy and the bedrock of all our joy would be the truth that you are a good God and you do all things well. All things. And so we can trust you as our Father because you do good to us. We love you and we praise you. And we pray these things in the great name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.